Hello, and welcome back to the Brennan Book Blog Podcast. I am your host, Kate Brennan, and we are back with episode six. This episode inducts you all into the Lonely Hearts Club for Valentine's Day with books that take the place of where your heart used to be. It seems that people love to hate Valentine's Day, so we've taken that a step further, going from our initial idea of books that break your heart to our even more depressing idea of books that leave you downright empty inside. Because, you know, sometimes it feels so good to feel so bad, and your emptiness can be that much more indulgent set against the backdrop of chocolate-filled heart-shaped boxes and overpriced prefix dinner reservations. So grab a bottle of wine to drink alone and prepare to be a hollowed-out shell of who you once were with books that take the place of where your heart used to be. A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan There comes a time when you realize that you will never be in the Olympics. You know what I'm talking about. That's my experience with A Visit from the Goon Squad. When I started reading the book, I harumphed at its ostentatious golden display of Pulitzer Prize winner on the cover. Why did this win the Pulitzer Prize? Why is this so much better than... And then I realized that I would never win the Olympics or the Pulitzer Prize and that any prose I employed would pale in comparison to the genius that is the writing of Jennifer Egan in A Visit from the Goon Squad. Each chapter switches perspective, not just character. It switches actual narrative voice, like third person to first person to the horrific second person. In the hands of a less adept writer, this would be unbearable. But within the span of a chapter, Egan so swiftly delves into the marrow of the character that she tells not only his story, but his whole life, past, present, future, The book is less like a read and more like an experience. You actually live along with the character. There is an entire chapter written in the second person, the second person, which even in the crafty hands of Morgenstern in the admittedly gorgeous The Night Circus was a challenge, and it is brilliant. About three quarters of the way through, I scrawled, this section is blowing my mind in the margin. Finishing the last 50 pages in a tea shop, I looked up repeatedly, desperate to conspire with someone, and was a breath away from talking to actual strangers on the Upper West Side about how unbelievable this book was. So what's it about? Like, in the hands of most good writers, it doesn't actually matter. But it's about everything. And nothing. It's depressing in a way that only life can be depressing. It's so sad, so empty, and so incredibly true. It's about expectation and reinvention, who we thought we were going to be when we were young and who we became. It's about when we were teenagers and we were going to be rock stars, and when we ended up divorced and remarried. It's a six degrees of separation, a chapter-by-chapter spiderweb that shimmers beautifully in the light, but by dark ensnares us all. It's about time. E.T. Bell wrote, Time makes fools of us all. Egan wrote a book about it. And it certainly deserves the most prestigious award in fiction imaginable. Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff In 1982, John Cougar Mellencamp probably didn't know he was writing Hurt So Good, 
about a finalist for the 2015 National Book Award, but he was. I picked up this book despite its mundane description about a marriage because another author on NPR was flabbergasted by the book. He talked about it in a way that made it seem scandalous and audacious and risky. So naturally, I bought it immediately. Let me start by saying, it's really not about a marriage. I mean, yes, it follows the perspective of a husband and then a wife as a married couple, but that's about it. What makes the novel so bold is actually Groff's exquisite facility with language. Her asides alone provide reason enough to read it. Are they her observations? Maybe the comments of some unidentified narrator? Also, she serves as another reminder as to why I will never be in the Olympics. There is something about fates and furies that's like a sore tooth. It's painful, but you can't help but press on it because the pain is inexplicably satisfying. It just hurts so good. It's like this twisted confirmation that, yes, world, I am alive. Lauren Graf, get out of my head. I actually feel a little breathless reminiscing about the novel, like it infiltrated my solar plexus, and if I think about it too much, I'll throw up. That might not be the type of criticism that authors are looking for, but I think it's the highest form of praise that through the written word, Groff transcended space and time and actually altered my body chemistry. Maybe magic does exist. With Fates and Furies, Groff touches something so deep and vulnerable that when I turned the last page, I mourned that I would never be the same. Part of me was sacrificed to its pages, The part of me that remains wants to package all that beauty and pain and leave it on an unattainable shelf, not discard it, but keep it far enough out of reach that while I'll always know where it is, I'll always be safe from its black magic. Zazen by Vanessa Veselka If someone out there knows Vanessa Veselka, could you please ask her to write more books? If you like stream of consciousness plus dark humor plus simile to die for, you will love Zazen. In Zazen's world, an organic, vegan, tattooed culture proliferates against the gritty backdrop of daily bombings, curfew, and capitalism. The main character describes her heart in one passage as a sea anemone. In one scene, a bomb threat is called into a yoga studio where the front desk staff says that a bombing wouldn't be possible at this time because the class was in Shavasana. I laughed out loud multiple times. Incredibly smart, witty, dark, poignant, and poetic, Zazen is full of humor and pathos. Veselka smears thought across the page. It's sad, painful, scary, and weirdly, very funny. She dives into the thought process and pulls out concepts that you yourself have entertained but couldn't fathom articulating. This book isn't terribly mainstream, but everyone should be reading it. The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman I saw Neil Gaiman a couple months ago at Carnegie Hall. We weren't hanging out or anything. He was reading his new book in front of a scrolling PowerPoint of macabre sketches accompanied by a four-piece string quartet from Australia, obviously. That's where I got my autographed copy of The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which I promptly added to an already teetering pile next to my bookshelf, 
I've held off on including a gaming book here. I'm not sure why, because I love Neverwhere and the Graveyard Book, and they equally deserve to be included. But until now, I'm not sure I could justly describe the dark humanity that is endemic of Gaiman's books. Gaiman writes the stuff of nightmares. And I don't mean the gruesome horror prevalent in every movie theater within a five-mile radius. I mean the real nightmares. The ones that are too sad, too frightening, and too harrowing to admit that we ourselves have. Because to do so would be to admit that we all only had one childhood. We all only have one life. And we are all going to die. That kind of nightmare that makes B-movies look like distractions. Harrowing is a great term to start describing the ocean at the end of the lane. A man returns to his childhood home for a funeral and finds himself reflecting on events of his youth as he sits by a pond behind the farm of his childhood friend. When my friend told me this synopsis, I quickly threw the book in a pile of those yet to be read and forgotten about, because reading about a guy going to a funeral isn't high on my list of interesting plot lines. Is the book about that? No, not at all. And in a way... It's completely about that. The book is scary, sure, but what makes it scary is not the dark. What makes it scary is the light. Gaiman, as an adult, writes with the preserved innocence of a child. If we have forgotten the wonder, the imagination, and the helplessness of our youth, Gaiman has been remembering it for all of us, and it is this that he includes in his books. The Ocean at the End of the Lane is the story between childhood and adulthood. It's a story that is too scary to remember, but too important to forget. It includes countless gems of childhood wisdom, of worry, of wonder, like adults take paths, children explore. And at the end of the book, I'm not sure what just happened. Was it all true? Was it just the fantastical interpretation of a child? But in the end, it doesn't matter. Because Gaiman is still speaking to my very core when he writes... You don't pass or fail at being a person, dear. And that, my friend, is my biggest nightmare of all. Thank you so much for tuning in to Episode 6 for Valentine's Day, books that take the place of where your heart used to be. I am Daniel Lady Williams, the producing engineer for the Brennan Book Blog Podcast. We hope you'll join us next time for Psychedelic Reads on St. Paddy's Day. If you like what you've heard, please tell your friends. If not, tell your enemies. Just tell someone. Until then, this is the Brendan Book Blog Podcast, and we encourage you all to keep calm and read on. Brennan Book Blog is a faculty feature on WOCU, the official podcast channel of Oklahoma City University's BA Theater and Performance Program. Executive producers include Mark Parker, Brian D. Parsons, and Gregory DeCandia. Brennan Book Blog Episode 6 was written and hosted by Kate Brennan with producing engineer Daniel Eddy Williams. Theme and all episode music composed by Kate Brennan. All episodes of Brennan Book Blog are streaming on WOCU.online and available via your favorite podcast streaming service. Brennan Book Blog reminds you to keep calm and read on.